Our reading this evening is Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. 
The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another, in, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will, be mixed, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. O Lord, have mercy on us. 
Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll get to the interpretation of that dream, what that means for history. It's something that unfolds in history. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian kingdom overtaken by the Persians, overtaken by the Greeks, overtaken by the Romans, and then Christ's kingdom, the stone that was cut without human hands that became a mountain filling the earth. That's what's coming. But until we get there, until we get there, we have something to learn about faith. It's the continuation of the lesson that we began last week as we saw Daniel fearlessly volunteering to eat a different diet than all of the rest of the young men in the king's court. Just serve us vegetables, he said. I don't want to be defiling myself with the king's food. And I believe that God will show that he is righteous, that God is just, that he is faithful. Because the question of faith is never, is never a question of our integrity. The question of faith, do I have faith? Do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Those questions are never really a question about my own conviction or my own endurance or my own steadfastness. They're not questions about my integrity. Faith is not some virtue in the sense of something that you can flex, something that you can look at and assess and measure. Instead, faith always looks at its object. It always looks at what it believes in. And so when we ask questions about faith, what we are really asking is a question about God's integrity, God's reliability, God's faithfulness. And that is why when faith wavers, when somebody is beset by doubt, when there's uncertainty, the question is never, are you going to make it? Are you going to be able to hold up? Will your faith withstand? That's not the question. The question is only this. Is God going to keep his word? Is he a God who keeps or breaks his promises? Is God steadfast and reliable and faithful? That's the only question. And that's a question, of course, that is answered so affirmatively that there can be no doubt about it. That is the question to ask in the face of uncertainty or anxiety or suffering. Don't ask Am I strong enough to endure this? Will I hold up? Can I make it through? Don't ask that question. Instead, simply ask, is God faithful? You know the answer. Simply ask, what has God promised? You know the answer. After all, if you look to yourself and to your own resources, if you look at the situation, the circumstances, whatever trouble you're facing, then there is no doubt you have every reason to be anxious. If it was up to us, to deal with our problems, to overcome our troubles, to get rid of our anxieties and fears and worries, we would never make it. If you were Daniel in the court of Babylon and the soldiers were coming to your door to take you and Hananiah and Mishael and, I get their Hebrew names wrong here, those three guys, if, you came, if they came to tear you all away, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's, those are the Babylonian names, I just don't like them as much. If if somebody was knocking at your door to carry you all away and you were leaving it to your own devices for you to decide whether or not you're going to make it, whether you will withstand, whether you should be anxious now or not, you would never survive. They're threatening to kill you. It's the king's decree. What can you do? There's nothing you can do. His demands are so unreasonable. Somebody tell me not only the interpretation of my dream, but also the dream itself, something that none of the wise men of Egypt could do. If it were up to us, if we were Daniel in that situation and it were up to us, we would never make it. Have you ever been afraid? 
like you might be afraid under those circumstances. Maybe not with soldiers knocking at your door, but have you ever been afraid of what is coming, what's just right around the corner? What else might be knocking at your door? Afraid of getting laid off or getting fired? Afraid that you won't get what you want, that you won't be approved for the loan, or that you won't be able to make the bills, or that you will not find a favorable result in the next scan, whatever it might be. Have you ever been afraid? Like Daniel could have been afraid in that moment. Now imagine Daniel standing there with these men coming and pounding on the door, ready to carry him away, to put him to death with all of the rest of the wise men of Babylon. There are two ways that we tend to react under those circumstances. The first way is very defensive. I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't my fault. Whatever it was, the king made an unreasonable decree. This is not just. This is not fair. I'm innocent. This shouldn't be happening to me. That's one of our instinctive responses. To dig in our heels and say, I don't deserve this. And that's one of the ways we make our defense. That's one of the ways we sort of burrow ourselves in our anxiety and our worry. We ruminate over how we don't have this coming to us, whatever it is that is actually coming to us. Our second reaction might be something like this. A little bit of honesty. Maybe I did do something to deserve this. Maybe there is something in me, some reason why things aren't going very well. And in fact, if you're honest, if you're honest, there really isn't any defense that can hold up. Any trouble that comes your way, can you really say that you've been blameless? that you've been clean, that you don't deserve it in some way? Both of those reactions are our instinctive reactions, either to insist on our innocence or to succumb to the reality of our guilt. Both of those possibilities are on the table. But did you notice that neither of them is the choice that Daniel took? Neither of them is the course that Daniel took. Daniel is not anxious. I think that that is thematic for this book. He's not anxious One bit, we don't see him sweating or furrowing his brow or biting his nails. We don't see him doing any of those things. Instead, he is continually cool and calm and collected. He's like that other dream interpreter, Joseph. Remember how the story went for Joseph? Sold by his brothers into slavery, then chief of Potiphar's house, then sent to prison for a crime he didn't commit, then chief of the prison, then forgotten by the cupbearer, then put on the throne second in command to Pharaoh himself, up and down and up and down. And all throughout that story, through the last part of Genesis, we see Joseph never bat an eye, never waver, constant, never anxious, never afraid, never biting his nails, never sweating. That's what Daniel is like. How can that possibly be? It can be like that for Daniel because he knows who God is. And he knows that God is reliable. And he knows that this is to what he has been called. That he wouldn't be there in Babylon, in this position with those soldiers pounding on his door. He wouldn't be there if God had not put him there. And that might take on some sort of romantic, highfalutin, heroic notions for Daniel. He might think, God has put me here for this reason so that I can rescue everybody. He might think that, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Instead, he says, God has put me here, and the only thing that can ever save me under any circumstances is the mercy of God. It's no different now with soldiers pounding on his door than it was yesterday when things were going well. It's no different tomorrow when this problem is resolved than it was the day before that. It all depends on the mercy of God. When your anxieties and your worries and your troubles come pounding at the door, it is no different in that moment than it has been for every other day of your life that everything depends on the mercy of God. That every moment, wherever you are, that is just where God has placed you. 
And that is good. It is so good. Because he is a God who is faithful and just. And so Daniel is not afraid. Unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, troubled by his dreams. I wonder what it was like for Nebuchadnezzar having that dream of that massive and frightening image, gold on the top, then silver, then bronze, then iron, and iron and clay on the bottom. It was frightening as he wondered what it meant. Whenever anything in a dream comes toppling down, you can't help but wonder whether it's you, whether it's about you coming toppling down. And so his heart was troubled, and it was so troubled that he overreacts in this dramatic way. He makes an unreasonable demand of those magicians and sorcerers, and they know it, and he knows it. Nobody is going to be help, able to help him. This is something that belongs to the gods. That's what they say. And the gods do not dwell among flesh. Nebuchadnezzar is anxious. And the only thing that's going to help him is a miracle. A miracle that he cannot conjure, nor can all of his wise men conjure. He needs to know. And he's afraid that he can't trust those sorcerers and those magicians. They're just going to trick him if he gives them the dream. They'll tell him an interpretation that would please him. He can see right through them. They know how to serve in his court. The thing is that Nebuchadnezzar has every reason to be anxious, every reason to be afraid, because what he has not realized to this point is that he is just a pawn, just a puppet, that he is where he is because God has placed him there, that he is where he is as the king of Babylon because God has placed him there for the sake of God's people, for the sake of Israel. That while Nebuchadnezzar thinks he has built and sustained this massive kingdom, a kingdom that Daniel acknowledges in its size and in its scope. Did you hear what he said about how God has given into his hands all people, wherever they dwell, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making him rule over all of them. God was the one who gave all of that to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is realizing now that he doesn't have the authority, the power, and the might that he once thought he had. This dream was troubling. So he was anxious and afraid. But again, Daniel was not. And that's good for everybody. That's good not just for Daniel or for the three men. It's good not just for the wise men who he saves from being slaughtered. But it's good for everybody. It's good for Nebuchadnezzar as well. Daniel comes into his court. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream. And he gives him the interpretation of the dream. And then above that, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that this wasn't because he was a particularly clever man or because he's particularly skillful in interpreting dreams, but it's because it's all from God. All this is from God. They are all where they are because God has placed them there. And that is why when Daniel prays, having been given the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, he blesses God. It's for the sake of God's name that all of this has happened. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. The name of God. Better and higher and more important than any other name. Better and higher and more important than my name or your name. The name that we so often try to protect and defend. The name that we try to clear. The name that we hide from guilt. It's God's name that matters. And it's for the sake of God's name that he acts. That he sent his people into exile in Babylon. That he gave them a wise man like Daniel to protect them. That he brought them back to the temple. That he sent his son to die for us. It's for the sake of his name, the name that he has given to you. Once again, the question is not about you and what you can do. The question is not about your faith, how strong it is, your integrity or your faithfulness or your reliability. The question is about God and what he will do. And he's given you his name 
and he means to protect his name, to defend his name. His name will not suffer reproach. It's the name of God. And so, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Like Daniel, you can be cool and calm and collected in the face of everything, in the face of all anxiety, in the face of every concern, in the face of exile in Babylon, whatever it might be. You can be cool and calm and collected because God is good and gracious and kind to you. And Nebuchadnezzar misses the boat on this one. You have to come back for the rest of the story. We hear next time how right away Nebuchadnezzar plays into the hand of God the judge as Nebuchadnezzar builds an image that maybe looks a lot like the image he dreamed about. What he should have done instead is to repent. He should have fallen on the mercy of God. He praises God as the God of gods and the Lord of kings, but he does not worship God as the one who humbles the great, who brings low the mighty so that he can exalt them. Nebuchadnezzar has that lesson yet to learn. But again, God is gracious and merciful. He put Nebuchadnezzar in that place for that reason, to show his mercy, not just to the people of Israel, not just to Daniel and the three other men, not just to them, but to the whole world, to you and to me. The theme of the story is this, that God has told us what will happen beforehand. He told it to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. He told it to us in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There's coming a stone not cut out by human hands that is going to grow into a mountain. He's told us what would happen beforehand. He's sending a savior to die for us, to make a kingdom and a life for us, to save us from our faithlessness, from our waffling, from our anxiety, from our fear, from anything that might trouble us. He's come to save us for his name's sake, and his name is good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.